Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on the 1st of November 2011. For newcomers, I always kick off the broadcast by advising you to go into cuttingthroughthematrix.com and to help yourself to the audios which are there for free download. There's hundreds to choose from. And hopefully they'll understand eventually that this mammoth system that overlays the world, this real parallel government that runs the world via its money systems and everything. Everything spins off of money. Governments all spin off of money. Everything runs on money. So the money systems at the top, the big foundations which they run, and their armies of non-governmental organizations and private enterprises too, which also work together to, to, to force the world along a design path basically. And that's how the world is truly run. It's always planned for the future and they make it happen for themselves. Those in power would never leave things to chance. They must ensure they're always in power and their offspring take over to stay in power for as long as it takes forever if, if need be. And that's how the world really is. Very, very simple. And we're living through the big changes as they, they basically take the whole planet over and force everything into one system. It's far easier for them to control then and they can plunder the whole planet much easier then too. And you'd be surprised at how many in academia are on board with this too because they get funding from grants again from these foundations and, and big banks etc to be on board with the big agenda yeah, I try to start to go into some of the associations to do with academia and uh, work them together for you as well go into the archive section at cuttingthroughthematrix.com and you'll find out a lot about that and there are lots of links uh, onto videos and for those that have to watch videos and there's a, link, a lot of links to those who like to read it's up to yourselves. But we're certainly not just plodding along day by day with the politicians making decisions as crises come out of the blue. Nothing comes out of the blue in this system. It's all well, well anticipated, if not, in fact, brought on. Remember, from the U.S. to Canada, you can buy the books and discs from uh, the website uh, by using personal check. Uh, you can also use international postal money order or PayPal, or you can send cash. And across the world, you can use Western Union, MoneyGram, and again, PayPal. Remember, straight donations, is all, is a really, they're really, really welcome in this time of inflation as we, the dollar gets devalued. And, and the Canadian dollar gets devalued along with the American because they're tied to the hip, basically, through trade and, and the same banks and all the rest of it. Now, as I say, the, the whole world is going through the big shake-up. And uh, big players talked about this 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, that this would be the greatest thing since the Industrial Revolution, where in the Industrial Revolution, the idea was to, to get all the peasants off the land, all the little plot farmers and farmers off the land into these filthy places they've thrown up called cities, manufacturing cities, to get them to work for very, very cheap labor, which was very successful for those in, who, who basically designed it all. 
And uh, today, of course, there's migrations, massive migrations across the world of uh, labor, along with goods for free trade. And that's part of the World Trade Organization's treaty from the United Nations that everyone signed on to an awful long time ago. And that's part of the treaty to do, it goes all the way back to the late 1800s with the Milner Group, uh, the Rhodes Society that became the Royal Institute for International Affairs and the Council on Foreign Relations, all the same system, basically. And uh, that was the idea, was to create free trade across the whole planet and the free transportation. In other words, no tariff barriers to importation of goods from abroad and also uh, labor, because the idea was eventually to bring very, very cheap labor into first world countries and bring down the first world countries to to a, a, a level playing field basically across the world, a standardization of the planet. And believe you me, it's a racist thing. It's a, it's a eugenical idea too, because they don't see the peasant from one country from any different from the peasant of another. They have no national affiliations at the top. They're truly global. They believe they have evolved higher because they have all the power. And I've talked about that so many times. I might touch on it tonight. Back with more after this break. Hi folks, we're back cutting through the matrix. Now as I say, I try to present the changes that are happening today, why they're happening. I add the parts in uh, generally that the media tends to leave out by design because the media is all owned and operated by members of the Council on Foreign Relations. has been for 100 years basically. And um, that's how Quigley, Carl Quigley, who was the historian for this organization, uh, worded it himself. He says, and they put special magazines out for different classes of people, the ones who are the managerial class who work in Washington, D.C. or capital cities, and uh, the, the ones for the middle classes who are working in, with plants and, and, and factories and all the rest of it. And, and then again, they do all the rags, as they call it, rags for the public down below, the general working classes. So they had it all designed an awful long time ago. They give each group their thoughts uh, which, which adds to their belief systems and the reality system all merged together and that's why they, they think they exist. They're doing this because they're trying to save this or save that or cause this. It's, in other words, every group is catered to by the Council on Foreign Relations. And believe you me, they have all types of members in it. They have, they have revolutionaries, they have, uh, they have right-wing, left-wing, and they have dictators on board as well. And they have union leaders on board because they run all the unions as well. Everything is run by the same organization at the top. It's quite amazing. And, and again, it's classified as a private think tank, an organization of people who get together, like-minded people who get to, together to, to, for, for change, basically, to combat and to think about or guide change, but mainly to advise governments across the world. It's the biggest think tank. Anyway, um, they give us all the heroes and zeros. And anybody who's anybody is a member of the Council on Foreign Relations or Royal Institute of International Affairs for the British side. And they have them across the whole planet. Anyway, they put in experts and all the rest of it. An expert from Bath. This is a wonderful exam- example of what Bertrand Russell said. He says, eventually, we'll, just the word expert will make people believe he's a specialist. You would have to even say what he was a specialist in. An expert from Bath is a place, you see has called for greater international cooperation at all levels to combat cyber attacks and online crime. Professor Paul Cornish, recently appointed Professor of International Security at the University of Bath, was today attending a two-day conference again organized by the government in London. 
So he's just been appointed, you see. So, you know, if you want to get appointed to one of these things, you're, you're questioned and tested and given the nudge and the wink and the lodge, etc. Just make sure that you're going to go along with the agenda and be a, very, a real advocate, a real true believer and push, you know, for change in the area that you're getting put, in, put into. So he's just appointed, and here, here he goes attending a big conference for the government in London. And it says the London conference on cyberspace, cyberspace took place at the head of the GCHQ, disclosed that a significant attempt to penetrate the computer system of the Foreign Office and other government departments had been made over the summer. Professor Cornish welcomed admission by Ian Loban. The cybersecurity threat is very serious and shows every sign of vigorous expansion. What is his job? He's just been appointed to that. He's going to be gung-ho, you see. And if there's not much happening, you've got to make, make it as though there is a lot happening because it's got an agenda to fulfill. And what is the agenda? It says basically completely alter the Internet. Total policing, a set level of rules, regulations of what you can say, what you can't say, all PC, very politically correct. And uh, this is what his job is. And so you see this problem under the disguise of, of uh, terrorism, cyber threat. So it's noticeable and very welcome that high-level officials, especially those in intelligence agencies, are coming forward with comments such as this. This openness will help to cultivate what I've been arguing for some time, the development of a national culture of cyber security. Others refer to the need for more cyber hygiene as far as antivirus protection is concerned, for example. But we also need a similar level of engagement and interest from the private sector, the third sector, and from individuals. He said there was a move away from the historic view of the Internet as neutral space that must not be interfered with by political or security agencies. For, the, for those who are hard of thinking, I'll, I'll just say it again. He said there was a move away from the historic view of the Internet as a neutral space that must not be interfered with by political or security agencies. It's now plain to all concerned that the Internet is being used for a wide variety of unacceptable practices from child pornography. They always use that one. That's why they've always made sure there's lots of it up there. To identify threat theft, to fraud, to terrorism and to espionage. Cornish, who was appointed in September, said the best answer to all these threats was to encourage the development of internationally acceptable norms and standards from the bottom up rather than the top down. As he added, we already have a... That, that means literally sussing you out to see if you should be allowed on the internet from the bottom. You're at the bottom, you see. A complete background check on you. And then if you fall into a certain category, they'll police you for a while as a sort of a, 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 a test a period to see if you pass the test. Uh, but they'll keep watching you regardless. And again, with servers too, they'll give you limited access, etc., etc. That's what it's all about, folks. He added, we already have a range of agreements, such as Cyber Crime Convention, and we already understand what we mean when we talk about cross-border criminal investigations, for example, so we should be able to use these established methods and ideas and extend them into the cyber realm, rather than have to start all over again and spend many years negotiating a treaty which will be out of date as soon as it's published. So representatives of 60 countries gathered in London, 60 countries, in an attempt to secure the benefits of the Internet amidst concern about rising levels of cyber attacks and online crime. This is an excuse for all. Uh, Foreign Secretary William Hague has called for a collective endeavour to ensure the enormous potential of cyberspace for developing a safer, more prosperous world is fully realised. So the one is, so Britain wants to develop a set of international rules of the road, establishing norms of acceptable behaviour in cyberspace, while stopping short of the full treaty advocated by some countries. 
Now, in other words, they're going to get to the full treaty of total policing advocated by some countries by doing it this way from the bottom up. And eventually you'll have a whole bunch of hurdles to jump over and loops to get through before you're even allowed on the net. And then again, you'll be on probation, etc. That's coming, folks. That's, that's it's really on this way. And and then you go into the Articles 2, what they're doing in other countries. Uh, and now, when they do something in another country like Germany, remember, they're already your government's already doing it on you at home. And this one's about German authorities plant spyware on citizens' computers. The software could let authorities spy via webcams and microphones. Now, they're already doing that in the States and all the school computers that they, they, they have the children buy through the school system. And, and I've got articles up there from two, three, four years ago on this very thing where headmasters have been watching students un- undress, for instance, at their home via the, the webcam on the computers. But that's okay, apparently. That's authorized. This is Dirk Erling of the Chaos Computer Club shows their control software for the Trojan spyware allegedly made by the German authorities monitoring the traffic on a remote computer. The club cracked a spying software that could allow German authorities to peer through webcams. The news has sparked outrage amongst politicians and media commentators. And it says it's the stuff of modern nightmares. A seemingly innocuous email plants malicious spyware on your computer allowing strangers to not only access your private communications, but also to spy on you in your own home. The fact that such invasive technology was deployed by officials in Germany has caused an uproar. While the monitoring of internet telephone communications is allowed by German law in serious cases, it's emerged that software deployed by some law enforcement agencies was capable of much more intrusive snooping, raising serious concerns about the potential for a Big Brother level of surveillance. The use of so-called Trojan horse software by authorities in a number of German states came to light after the Computer Chaos Club, a hacker group, published details of the examination of spyware planted on a laptop in Bavaria. And it goes on to say, uh, it says, it found that the software developed by a, pir- a private company called Digitask, Digitask it's called, D-I-G-I Task, for the Bavarian police was capable of much more than just monitoring the phone calls. It could take screenshots, remotely add files, and control a computer's microphone or webcam to monitor the person's home. However, the authorities insist that they did not deploy these functions. Of course not. They just put them on because one day, you know, who knows. This is Graham Cluley, a senior technology consultant with British computer security firm Sophos, which also analyzed the software, said that the spyware could automatically update itself over the Internet so new functionality can be added. It can be used to install new software on the computer so people could actually alter the contents of a suspect's hard drive. The scandal has led politicians and security experts to look at whether the country's already stringent privacy laws need firming up. Now, there's two articles on that. I'll put this one up with another one at the end of uh, the broadcast, cutting through the matrix.com. But they already have that in the West. In fact, back in the 90s, the US and Canada signed a deal that all communications devices, everything that communicates, all electronics, had to have chips and, and back doors and accesses for government agencies to go into any time they wanted to. So that's been the law in all things uh, electronic as far as communicators go. It's quite the world we're living in, eh? But we're supposed to just trust them. And most folk do, mind you. They don't even think they forget it's even been done to them. They don't even remember it. Now, it's wonderful, too, that uh, there's an article. Uh, it's from Moody's, about, about Moody's. 
And it's quite interesting how Moody's, this big corporation that rates different banks and all the rest of it, is just as corrupt as the banks. Of course it is, because it's staffed with guys who've worked in the banks. And it's really almost a blackmail organization. Uh, There's a lot of paybacks and, you know, kickbacks and so on to give you good ratings. I'll put a link up to that tonight as well. It's quite, quite fun in a sense, because you understand everything in this world to do with money is a con. Everything, everything, everything is a con. And, and a business maker for a certain few people. But I'll put that link up as well, and you can have a wee look at that. Now, also, I've mentioned this corporation before, this company, CACI, C-A-C-I, which is into everything from schools across the world uh, to handling um, the nuclear weaponries of countries like Britain. Uh, they've got lots of private jails across the world where they get slave labor, that makes their different companies widgets that they sell elsewhere. And so that's a fantastic thing right off the Old Testament in a sense. I'll talk about this one when I come back from this break. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and talking about the private organizations that run the world. And they work with governments, they advise governments, they do private partnerships, public-private partnerships with governments, take over prison systems, that kind of thing. And they're into the war business in a big time, big way. Uh, They have free access and immediate access to top members of military staff personnel at Pentagon and for the U.S. and Whitehall and all different places across the world for all the different countries, private organizations. This is the new feudal system, of course, that Carl Quigley said they would bring in. Everything would be privatized and all the functions of government would be private, basically, private outsourcing. And, uh, and eventually your, your governments would just be bureaucracies that did the paperwork and put things into writing and passed it as law on behalf of private companies. So here you have the, one of the biggest ones here, and it's, it's Khaki, and it's, uh, it's one of their, one of their many, uh, websites. This one's the asymmetricalthreat.net website. It says, we're pleased to announce this new website, asymmetricalthreat.net, launched in conjunction with the third in a series of Khaki's co-sponsor symposia on dealing with today's asymmetric threats held at Fort Myer. So they've got, they're right into all the stuff that the places that's forbidden to the general population and, and other companies for that matter, because they're in the war business. And it says, it says basically the symposium attracted an array of guests from government agencies and civilian organizations assembled with the common purpose of developing new thinking on achieving an overarching national strategy that will effectively counter the threats posed by our enemies. It's amazing this is an international company, but they talk about our enemies, eh? These experts attending the sessions are focused on concrete approaches to structural, procedural and resource changes needed to realign the elements of national power against very savvy, adaptable adversaries. And I'll put one at this link up to say it gives you an idea of this, how these organizations work. And do searches yourself on Khaki. You'll find all the other branches of the, the military-industrial complex that it's associated and works with. It's all really one, part, one big consortium basically, all the big boys. And that's how the world is really run, through organizations like this. They're not answerable to the public. They don't have to tell the public anything, in fact. 
and uh, and so they, they get their way on everything. Another article, too, is an interesting poll. It's from a, a Jewish newspaper. It's called Jewish Life. It says, um, results of a new poll commissioned by the European Commission show that Israel is believed by Europeans in 15 countries to be the greatest threat to world peace, greater than North Korea, Iran, or Afghanistan. Of course, they use this kind of article to make hay on how prejudiced the world is and get more cash or more laws passed or whatever. While the European Commission released the full results of the poll on Monday, the International Herald Tribune reported that the 7,500 people uh, polled living in the European Union, 500 in each of the 15 EU member states or countries, were presented with a list of 15 countries and asked if these countries present a threat to world peace. Shockingly, Israel was rated first. So in other words, they're going to change perception management. That's all perception management. That's what these polls really tell them. And they'll get cash from companies to do so uh, for their advertising and so on. It says these shocking results that Israel is the greatest threat to world peace, bigger than North Korea, Iran, Afghanistan, defies logic and is a racist flight of fancy that only shows that anti-Semitism is deeply embedded within European society, more now than any other period since the end of World War II, said the rabbi Marvin Heyer. The center's dean and founder. So they always make hay uh, with this kind of stuff. But folk have been scared because Israel's already mentioned, uh, again, through PR uh, and trial balloons that they might attack Iran. And everybody's scared of atomic war starting, obviously. That's the scaring folk. You know. And at the same time, um, the Council on Foreign Relations uh, talks about Israel's bunker mentality and how the occupation is destroying the nation. The greatest danger to Israel comes not from without in the form of Palestinian intransigence, but from within. The ongoing occupation of the territories is destroying Israel's values and viability. It breeds an aggressive, intolerant ethnic nationalism and causes political gridlock, empowering an ultra-religious underclass that refuses to contribute and lives off of the state. And it's quite a good little article too, which is probably more factual because there's a lot of different factions within Israel itself all vying for power and um, it says for the Israeli rights and its allies around the world the greatest danger to Israel's future is the unwillingness of Palestinians to make peace the Israeli-Palestinian conflict does threaten Israel but not as the right would have it because militant and even seemingly moderate Palestinians harbour plans to drive the Jews into the sea they've always used that really for their heavy heavy handedness tactics etc but it's a bunker mentality, and it's the fact they're very intolerant people because they're ultra-nationalistic in a world where a lot of their kinsmen, in fact, led the charge across the world to, to de-nationalize other countries, while Israel becomes the only ultra-nationalistic place in the world. So actually they, they become intolerant. That's what happens with ultra-nationalism. And um, also, too, an article on the uh, Stuxnet worm or virus. It says it hits Europe, it says, very stuck notes. It says, uh, the worm, which was the first instance of a computer virus creating physical damage, may have spawned a dangerous new piece of malware, researchers at Symantec believe. They've discovered a new computer virus that uses many of the same techniques in European computers. They believe it's been designed by the guys which designed the Stuknet one in the first place, which was Israel and Britain, uh, the U.S., apparently, working to, to damage other uh, um, nuclear power stations across the world, especially their enemies. The ready stuckness worm, which is the first instance of a computer virus creating physical damage, may have spawned the new one. Researchers at Symantec believe they discovered it. According to Liam O'Murchu, 
a Symantec researcher who's analysed the Stuxnet. Parts of the new code have been taken from the Stuxnet, obviously. Back with more on this topic after this break. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. Hi folks, we're back, cutting through the matrix and just talking about the Stuxnet virus that was was designed initially to take down nuclear power plants, and especially the ones in Iran, that's when it was first discovered. And they thought it was actually a system worked out by the U.S. military and the Israeli military. And so it's interesting. that It's like all these viruses and things. You understand, I've often thought that the companies that come out with the antivirus, where all the different programs that you have to buy to try and save yourself from crashes and so on, buy these things, have to be designed by probably the guys that make the viruses in the first place. Have you ever thought about that? It's very, ever kind of dawned on you that, uh, that's, because right away there's always a company, immediately a company that's got the antidote to it. So you have to buy their uh, spyware, you know. And of course, I do know people in the know who've talked to people in the know uh, and who actually work there, people who were at university with them who actually have done this, who worked in these anti-spyware companies that actually put out viruses and sell you the antidotes. So who knows what this particular one is, uh, but we do know that the military's into the big time. I've read articles before from the Pentagon to do with their special viruses where they can actually even, they, they claim they can actually kill you by sequencing certain combinations of, of uh, coding on your screen that literally will program your brain with the works of forms of different little um, electrical codes, etc., fill your brain into certain things and give you strokes and things. So who knows? Who knows? It's, it's interesting too, though. There's a lot of youngsters now getting strokes sitting watching their high definition, definition televisions and, and computers, who are not obese, by the way. But anyway, this article here says that uh, obviously this new virus has taken, been taken from the Stuxnet, and probably by the guys that obviously created it. It even says it in the article further down. It was uh, largely believed to have been created by the U.S. and Israeli military, and computers were infected with a USB stick loaded with the virus that exploited a zero-day vulnerability that allowed it to spread across systems. And uh, so there you go. And these are the guys that want to police you on the Internet. Well, guess how they're going to do it? If you won't comply, they'll just burn out your hard drive or something else. Actually, some of these ones out now, these, these ones that they're using in Germany, um, can actually, they work by literally clinging on to the memory and not the hard drive. And that's where your antivirus stuff won't, won't detect it. Quite interesting. So another article here, too, is to do with members of Congress because... Uh, you understand, I've mentioned before, that all uh, power systems to do with politics attract uh, one type of people, especially, and they're psychopathic in nature. A psychopath like a shark. He'll go to where the power is because that's where he worships. He worships power. A psychopath worships nobody except pe- people who are more powerful than himself and who have more money, more power, more wealth uh, than himself. That's who he worships. And it's the same in the military. It's very militaristic in a sense because... You found, if you look at the big regimes uh, like the, the communist system, the Soviet system in Russia, 
and uh, the Stasi system in Germany and, of course, uh, uh, the Nazi system as well. Uh, from the top down, in the, decli- in the declining order, the ones beneath them, even the officer class, worshipped the ones above them, literally worshipped, but despised those beneath them in a typical psychopathic fashion. So, anyway, they always head for power and they go into politics. And that's why you never get in. And they're all buyable, by the way. They're all completely buyable by those with cash. It says, despite the economic recession, declining household wealth, the net wealth of members of Congress continues to rise, according to a roll call analysis of financial disclosure forms. Members of the House and Senate have collective net worth of $2.4 billion, up from $1.65 billion in 2008. The vast majority of the increase goes to the wealthiest members of Congress, who also account for most of Congress's net worth. Members' net wealth may be much higher, however, since roll call only used the minimum valuation of assets in the range required by disclosure forms, and disclosure forms do not include non-income producing assets, such as a personal residence, or residences, I would add to that, and or gifts, a lot of, a lot of gifts, you know. Anyway, it gives a list of some of the, the wealthiest ones and so on, how their wealth is just increasing. They're all taking lobbyists, you understand. You know that's how it's working. You, you see the lobbyist, you make sure they get the contract by government, and you get the kickback, and, and that's how it's always kind of been. Okay? Yeah, I said it. Yeah, I said it. Ooh, ooh I said it. <laughs> and another one, too, has to do with um, the hunt for MF Global's missing $700 million. It went to money heaven. Money heaven, again. MF Global, headed by former New Jersey Senator and Goldman Sachs CEO John Corzine, filed for bankruptcy yesterday, but reports that $700 million is missing, and it spooked creditors and others on Wall Street, reports deal books as I'm Ahmad. Best case scenario, the missing money is just sloppy internal controls. That's all it is. It's just sloppiness, you know. But worst case scenario, the financially unstable MF Global diverted customer funds to back its own trades. Either way, the news has made MF Global's chance for survival dim. A report deal brooks Ben Protest, Michael J. Della Merced, and Suzanne Craig. Customers' funds must be kept separate from company money, they write. One of their basic duties of any brokerage firm is to keep track of customer accounts on a daily basis. Well, why do they say what's supposed to be when they've lost $700 million, eh? Uh, for now, neither Corzine nor MF Global have been accused of anything, but the firm has been suspended from trading on the London Mercantile Exchange and Futures Market CME Group reports at the San Francisco Chronicle. And it says... Um, so anyway, um, it says the fears that happen are, are, are on the way that the trouble at MF Global would spread to other firms, explains Ahmad. With MF Global filing for bankruptcy Monday, investors pummeled many financial stocks, fearful that problems were looking on the books of other Wall Street firms, he writes. It was a crisis of confidence, not unlike in 2008 when the markets punished stocks in a mere speculation of trouble, but it might not be as bad as 2008. Then they go on with the usual stuff of maybe it will, maybe it won't. And um, it's just a little bit more, but nothing much. It's a ripple effects, ripple effects, ripple effects. Anyway, just more more chronology, and that's what money is all about. Seven hundred million dollars has gone missing, but it's no big deal, folks. Don't worry about it. You know, don't worry about it. Maybe they'll get a bailout, and then it's not missing anymore. It's been replaced. Eh? And Montgomery County introduces the Shadowhawk unmanned aerial vehicle to spy upon the public. It costs a lot of dough as well. They love these names. Little boys, aren't they? They watch all these war movies and, and they've got a shadow hawk, you know, and they've got destroyers and 
the smasher, you know, etc. And they love this kind of stuff, isn't it? They're just little mature little boys. Eh? It's been used for military operations in countries like Afghanistan, East Africa, but now it's coming to a country near you. Well, I said that years ago. These things will eventually be used on you. And, of course, it's inevitable. And I'll put this link up to all these articles. I put links up. Remember, at cuttingthroughmatrix.com at the end of the broadcast if you want to go on and, and see more about it. Now, from the CBC, this is a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, often called the, the Canadian, the, the Communist Broadcasting Corporation in Canada, uh, because that's really who staffs it, always has been. Uh, and it's, of course, it's government funded by, like the BBC is too. It makes you roll PC. But, um, it's a good, good little video here on energy efficient light bulbs, and it says that they're killing us. Because these are the little things that they give you, apart from the mercury in them, if you smash them, uh, which is in a really nasty form because it's vaporized and you breathe it in right away. But apart from that, they, they give off spikes, spikes, high-frequency spikes, very much like microwave. And the spiking-type radiation is thought to be the worst kind of radiation for causing cancers and various other problems in, in the general public. So this article it goes through this, and it shows you with the meters being used next to these bulbs, the difference between the ordinary bulb, the ones that they're doing away with, the ones that gave you, you know, a nice readable light, instead of these yellow candlish, you know, things that tell you by publicity and propaganda they're much better for you. Uh, anyway, it shows you that the difference between the two kinds of bulbs, actually different bulbs are tested, but they, they show you this, this, uh, the energy efficient light bulbs are the worst of them all uh, for giving these, these microwave type spikes off them. It's not too bad an article. And then we got into um, an interesting article to do with uh, the arms trade and big business. Because in, in 2010, France sold Gaddafi, at least Libya. The Libyan public, they always say Gaddafi, but remember, he, he, they had a government in, in Libya. They had a government. Gaddafi uh, didn't really stick his nose into the government affairs. So uh, France sold the Libyan government 90 uh, million euros worth of armaments, weaponry, in 2010. They probably got it all back once went and plundered it. That's what they often do, mind you. It says, um, according to a department report by French Minister of Defence, 35 million euros worth of orders and 90 million euros million of orders of actual deliveries were made on the roster of France's arms exports to Libya in 2010. Nathalie Gubert said in a Le Monde editorial. She added that in January, one month before the onset of the Libyan revolution, uh, Muammar Gaddafi received the last batch of 1,000 missiles. According to the article, France was the fourth largest arms exporter in 2010, with over 5 billion euros in revenues from arms sales. It says Gubert further uh, quotes France's Delegate General for Armaments, uh, Laurent Collet Billon, as saying that in business terms, the military operations in Libya demonstrate the best circumstances in the market for arms deals. It says that the helicopter carrier PCBs sold to Russia, Rafale jet fighters, for which the French government hopes to finally conclude a first agreement with the United Arab Emirates, Tiger helicopters from Europe or scalp missiles fired for the first time in Libya turned the North African country into a showcase for the sales of the military weapons. Gibbert pointed out that Libya has the biggest share of our imports 
from France amongst the countries which have been the scene of popular uprisings. Quite amazing, eh? So they sell them all this stuff first, then a year later, France gets the honour of bombing them. <laughs> they were the first ones to get it. And that is, that's an honour in NATO, you see, to, to be the first ones to start the bombing. And so they always show you the French fighters going down and bombing them. But when their armies go in and so on too, they get all, that, all, all this weaponry back, you know. So it really cost them nothing. Actually, they ripped them off for millions of euros. They get it all for free, yeah. They all do that, though. You know, they actually all do that. What they often do, too, is when they go into a country, they take all their arms back, then they ship them off to another country they want to start the next war with. That's a, an old, old technique which they use. Yeah. It says, in 2010, arms exports reached 9.8 million euros to Bahrain, almost 40 million euros to Egypt, and 1 million euros to Tunisia, including machine guns, the AA-52, she said. The French analyst noted that Paris has also granted nearly 55 million of export licenses for military equipment to the Zini El Abidin Ben Ali's regime in Tunisia over the last two years. Said the Islamic awakening in Arab countries, I mean that's all the Western um, infiltration with their color revolutions, have posed a challenge to French arms exports. The Libyan revolution has ended arms sales to the country, but France is now eyeing the lucrative markets of Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates as a destination for its arms exports. And of course, a lot of these armaments companies too, especially the really advanced ones, already saw this coming years ago when they'd run out of nations to conquer and they decided, uh, oh, back in the 80s, that they'd have to go, really go into the, uh, the, the security area of, of spying on all the public and selling stuff to the governments to spy on their own public. Uh, but there are still uh, the old armaments agencies still out there selling the, the weaponry. So everything's always arranged in advance, isn't it, too? Oh, see, they've got tremendous armaments there. We've got to go and bomb them, and they're a threat to the world. And they've just sold all the stuff to them. <laughs> now, in Australia, we know Australia has gone the way of the Soviet system, and uh, the supreme dictator now is um, uh, Julia uh, Gillard. And uh, she just came out and basically destroyed all free speech in Australia. It's quite an article. It's like something that came out of Lenin's mouth or or Stalin. In a submission to Julia Gillard's or Gillard's media inquiry, the press council has also raised the prospect of securing government funding to expand its coverage to online news and blog websites, because it says here uh, that um, they're going to start fining uh, reporters for grave media breaches and maybe oh, it could even be prison. Who knows? Since newspapers and magazines can be fined up to $30,000 for exceptionally grave or persistent breaches of media standards. In a submission to Julia Gillard's being inquired, the press councils have raised the prospect of securing government funding to expand coverage to online news and blog websites. So it wants to go after bloggers too. And suggests newspapers could be censored or reprimanded where appropriate under sanctions to boost public confidence in the media. So in other words, they're going to stop all opposition from the authorized media. Uh, uh, and, and about the authorized media uh, by by basically uh, censoring or reprimanding or fining or no doubt imprisoning people who put out blogs with with more um, more of the details behind the news. Uh, that's what she's really after. The press council, part funded by News Limited, has fired the opening shots in the government's media inquiry with a series of options to beef up public sanctions against sloppy journalism. Sloppy journalism means letting too much out of the bag to the public. That's what that means. It says, these include a new panel headed by a retired judge. Oh, here they go with their judges and all these alcoholic guys, you know, wear dresses under their, under their cloaks, you know, with the power to impose fines against newspapers or magazines of up to $30,000. 
In a letter to the media inquiry, Chair Julian Disney said the press council was currently considering such a process but also raised concerns it could become legalistic and time-consuming. The first trickle of submissions were published yesterday by the media inquiry, which was established by the Gillard government following pressure from the Greens. That Green Party, you go into the history, it was interesting, Madeleine Albright's, I think it was her father or her grandfather, was, was the right-hand man of Stalin, by the way, um, said that eventually when they, when they, you see, the Soviet system was to come down in about 70 years, which it did. Lenin said that, that's how, how long the dictatorship would, would last. And then they changed from red to green, which is their sacred colour. And it was Albright's granddaddy, this pal of Stalin, who came, who started up the Green Party that was to carry it on across the world. Just for those who don't know. And Albright, of course, is the, up at the head of NATO now, right now, that decides to bomb countries like Libya. Interesting, eh? Retired federal judge, court judge Ray Finkelstein has been asked to report back to government by February, including on the effectiveness of the press council considered a toothless tiger by its critics. So anyway, they're going to go after all the the non-authorized journalism that's going on and after journalists who let too much out of the back and who are not politically correct and who, who, who just say praiseable things about the great dictator, uh, Julia. And that's what the Soviet system for you. It's astonishing, eh, in this day and age. But it's just the same, same tricks and, and, and threats, etc. they've always used down through time. They're also talking about uh, another tunnel. I say another tunnel because they don't mention that the last tunnel they made to, from Canada uh, to uh, Siberia. This one's to, to link Alaska and Siberia by train. And it says, um, the tunnel, which would reportedly be 65 miles long, bored under the icy waters of the narrow Bering Strait, which separates Russia from North America above the Pacific Sea, was reportedly backed by high-profile Russian politician Alexander Leventhal this week. London's The Times reports 11th endorsed the idea at a conference on developing Russia's northeastern rail infrastructure, although it was first mooted by the Tsar Nicholas II over a hundred years ago. At twice the length of the Channel Tunnel that connects Britain and France, it will be an ambitious engineering project, but one which could bring considerable benefits for travellers. The whole world is to be connected by tunnels, by the way. Even the Germans were complaining last year about so the same thing going through their country, linking all of Europe together by these super-fast tunnels. Well, they must always make sure that military, when there's a one-world military, you make sure they can get right to the, the, the source of problems immediately. And you, no, don't forget that. Back with more after this break. I'm Alan Watt, we're back cutting through the matrix and eugenics goes on and on and on and on of course and and every time at this time of year the UN puts out its big hullabaloo about oh the population size is blah 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 and who knows whether they're true or not but the size of it, it could be any figure they're throwing out there, we have no means to check on it. Anyway, they always claim it's massive and huge, even though uh, they're, when you go into their own sites, they admit the population's dropping like a stone, has been for years in all the first world countries, and that's why they bring in massive immigration. But it's not good enough, you see. It's not good enough. Because the Fabian Society, one of the, the it plays the left-wing side for the Royal of International Affairs, because they have the right-wing side and their middle side as well. Uh, but the Fabian side talked about this back in the early 1900s in the Fabian Society. There's a list of countries that Hitler eventually adopted and, and uh, they bring down. 
uh, but uh, on the on their list they had the ones who who they wanted to eliminate from the world they'd never adapt into this world of of industry and and and, and you know eight to six or seven o'clock at night jobs and and that kind of stuff and 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 pay massive taxes and just be all fairly obedient and one of the groups was the Scots and Irish and, and different ones but said the Celts have a particular um, 80 genes, you know, it's a, uh, you, you have allergies to tyranny. It's, it's, it's a gene that's in you, apparently, uh, and it comes out in every generation. So you just can't buckle down and be a good slave. Anyway, they're still at it, so they bring in this professor to tell the Scots, on behalf of the United Nations, of course, this is one of Scotland's most eminent scientists has argued that couples in the UK should have more, no more than two children to help tackle the world's soaring population. Professor Sir Ian Wilmot puts forward this his controversial views in today's Scotsman, as the number of people on the planet officially hits 7 billion, so they say. Even though they say themselves, it's plummeting like a stone. And the more the, the third world countries go up, less children they have, and the income's abortion, and they're already paying for all that, and eventually they'll just be just like the West. You see, The professor of reproductive biology, this is the big lie here, most famous for his role in cloning Doyle the sheep, he was a bureaucrat director in charge of the operation. He wasn't the scientist that did it. There's even lawsuits about that right now, but it doesn't matter. Good PR for him. Argues that population control is essential and beneficial even in countries like our own because of the strain such a large number of people place on the planet's resources. And, and also, um, he, he mentions that the Scots should bring... Well, the Scots, the Scots, you know. There's only about five million Scots over there. It's been like that for a long time. Tiny wee country. They're an endangered species, in fact. But it's not good enough for these characters. And, and as soon as you all die off anyway, they'll, they'll bring in the massive immigration. And, and is that what they want it for? You know, who knows? Or just don't like the Scots. I just don't know. Same with the Irish. It's just the way it is. And um, but it goes on and on and on. And um, there, there's just so many incredible amounts of rubbish to do with this population stuff. Even though it's plummeting, and, and all their statistics show it when you really do your own particular um, look into it, look see and search for it. They admit that. I've read all the articles on this particular broadcast over the years on the plummeting population. Sterility in the males is epidemic, and, uh, well, that's just the way it is. And this character here, another another eugenicist here, he's the man who believes that millions of Britain's pensioners, the old folk, are, to put it bluntly, taking up too much space. I knew this would come eventually. They always start with the young, abort them, and then hit the elderly, you know. Last week, Angus Hanton and his Labour-backed think tank launched a report saying that empty nesters should be encouraged through a new land tax to downsize. So they'll penalise them with taxation until they move into these tiny little hovels or go into old-age homes. What a bar steward this character is, because his parents live in a £1.5 million five-bedroom house. It's okay for him. Different strokes for different folks, eh? This is one of the big boys that want to force it on the people down below. Well, from Hamish Marcel from Ontario, Canada, it's good night. I mean, your God or your gods go with you. And remember to buy the books and donate, because I don't bring on advertisers and just advertise, 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 advertise. It's up to you. See you tomorrow.